0: Well, for the sake of our guest, uh, we have uh, begun a a brand new study in the uh, New Testament book of Philippians. Uh, We've only been in the study for about uh, three weeks now, and uh, we have uh, begun to delve into uh, chapter one, uh, which evolves around uh, the challenge to every believer to live the gospel of Jesus Christ. We defined the gospel of Christ as the good news that Jesus Christ can be ours right now and forever through faith in His sin-forgiving death on the cross and His life-giving resurrection from the grave. Uh, Chapter 1 can be divided Into three major sections. The first uh, being the first 11 verses, which we examined last Sunday. And there, the focus is on fellowshipping in the gospel of Christ. The second section, which we will begin to look at today, is verses 12 through 26, where the focus is advancing the gospel of Christ. And then the third section is verses 27 through 30. Uh, where the focus is suffering for the gospel of Christ. So what I'd like to do is begin with a very brief review of last week's emphasis on fellowshipping in the gospel of Christ. And I hope you picked up a copy of the sermon notes and you'll just uh, follow there. But the first truth we discovered last Sunday was that true Christian fellowship is believers becoming partners... To propagate the gospel. In verse 5, Paul thanked God for the Philippians and their fellowship, or that would be better translated, participation with him in the spread of the gospel. How do we propagate the gospel? Well, we propagate it visually. That's living out the gospel uh, through our lives as the very character of Christ is formed in us as believers and displayed through us. We also propagate the gospel verbally, which of course is sharing the gospel with individuals that do not know him, uh, sharing that marvelous story of his death, burial, and resurrection, and his offer of the forgiveness of sin and a relationship with God. And then virally, as we establish just an atmosphere which is conducive uh, to spreading the gospel. Now, the primary takeaway from last Sunday's message was this. What we often call fellowship in the church today falls short of how Christian fellowship was defined and experienced in the New Testament church true Christian fellowship is believers uniting to accomplish the mission entrusted to us by our resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. After His resurrection from the dead and right before His ascension into heaven, Jesus said in Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age of this world. Now, what do we call that? That's known as what? The Great Commission, not the Great Suggestion. But the great commission, this is what we have been commissioned to do as believers. In Mark 5, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations. Luke 24, repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in my name to all the nations. John 20, Jesus says, as the Father sent me. And how did the Father send the Son? To seek and save those who are what? Lost And he says, "As a father sent me, so I have sent you into the world." And then in Acts chapter one, he said, "You shall be my what? Witnesses. First in your neighbor, your own hometown, and then in the larger region, into the uttermost parts of the world. Simply put, true Christian fellowship is believers, building relationships and working together to accomplish the mission Christ gave us to propagate, to spread the gospel. It is great for us to get together to have our coffee and donuts and to uh, share with one another our trials and struggles. It is good when we come together for worship to study God's word and pray But if all of that does not center around a passion for and a participation in the spread of the gospel, it falls short of true Christian fellowship. Now listen, beloved, when the propagation or the spread of the gospel becomes the central thing that unites us, suddenly everything comes to life. Bible study is no longer just learning about God's character and will, but learning how to live out God's character and will before a watching world. It becomes about being trained and equipped To be soldiers of Christ to advance his kingdom. Prayer no longer is just a magic wand to get what I want. But becomes a weapon to execute God's will on earth. And to storm the very gates of hell to rescue those who are lost. Worship is no longer about me getting my preferences or having a feel-good experience, but about Christ receiving the glory that is due Him from every race, every language, every age group, every people group, every nation. The second truth we discovered last Sunday is that true Christian fellowship is believers partaking in God's grace to persevere in the gospel. There will be opposition. How do we persevere in the gospel? By remaining faithful to the gospel when persecuted and speaking up for the gospel when challenged. And the third and final truth from last Sunday, true Christian fellowship is believers putting at the center of their prayers the priorities of the gospel. And we saw how we should pray. We're, we should pray in order to, what, grow in love, to grow in our love for God, in our love for one another, that all men would know that we are His disciples, and to grow in our love for a lost world. We're to pray that we would discern what is best, that when we come to the various crossroads in life, the various decisions in life, we'll make those decisions That will be best for the furtherance, the advance of Christ's cause and his gospel. That we would walk in integrity. That our testimony would provide a credible uh, foundation for our witness. And then to produce fruit. That through our lives, Christ's life would be reproduced in order that others would find nourishment. That others would find him and we live for the glory of God, God's glory. And God's glory is simply the visible manifestation of His presence. And the reason this church exists is to extend His presence into this community, to express His character, to demonstrate His power, and that as Christ is lifted up, men and women, boys and girls, would be drawn to the saving knowledge of Christ. Now, in this morning's message, we turn our attention to how to live the gospel of Christ by advancing the gospel of Christ. And our focal uh, passage is at second major section in the first chapter, verses 12 through 26. Now, as we begin to walk through this, don't get scared. I'm not going to come close to finishing this message this morning. Matter of fact, I don't know that we'll get much beyond the very first point because there's a lot of historical background that I need to give you that really allows this section to to, to come alive uh, for us. Uh, Now, in this section, what Paul is doing is he's giving the Philippians an update about his condition and his ministry. They're concerned because where is Paul when he wrote this book? He's in prison. And so they're very concerned about him. Remember, they sent one of their church leaders uh, with a financial gift to support uh, Paul. And, and that leader was also sent to minister uh, to Paul. And so they were, they were concerned. And so as that church leader went back to the church at Philippi, uh, Paul sent with him a letter uh, to, the, to the church. And so in this section is where he becomes very personal uh, about where he is, what he's going through, how God has used to all of this uh, in his life and for the advance of the gospel. But keep in mind Yes, he's giving them an update, but this update should be providing them a lot of what? Inspiration. As they see the example of Paul's life, as he deals with persecution and opposition, it gives them an example to follow as they deal with persecution and opposition as believers living in Philippi. So look there at your notes at the very first truth, Paul's circumstances resulted in the progress of the gospel. This is what Paul wanted them to know, wanted them to understand. Yes, it's been difficult. Yes, it's been rough. There's been a lot of pain, but you know my circumstances have resulted in the progress of the gospel. Look at verse 12. He says, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Now, when Paul mentions his circumstances, what is he referring to? We just noted it a moment ago. His what? His imprisonment. And he's uh, talking about everything that led up to that imprisonment and how God used it. And all of that is recorded in the last eight chapters of the book of Acts. And let me just take a little time right now. Just to give you the historical background. Because when you do understand these circumstances, it really makes this passage uh, come to life. Four years earlier, four years before he wrote the book of Philippians, Paul traveled to Jerusalem, to the city of Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, he is falsely accused by the Jews of bringing Greeks into the temple which was considered at that time a desecration of the temple. This literally ignites a massive city-wide riot among the Jews. A lynch mob is formed and they drag Paul out of the temple and they begin beating him, their intent to kill him. Paul is rescued by the intervention of Roman soldiers who arrest him thinking, believing that Paul is an Egyptian terrorist on their most wanted list. Well, the Romans pretty quickly after apprehending Paul realized he is not uh, a terrorist, uh, but a follower of Christ who has incited the Jews, although they have no clue uh, why or how this happened. The Jews then, they devise a plot to kill the apostle Paul, which is exposed by the son of Paul's sister. The results, this results in the Romans then having to sneak Paul out of Jerusalem under the cover of night, protected by a detachment of 470 soldiers, foot soldiers, cavalrymen, spearmen. This shows you how grave the situation was. Paul then is taken to Caesarea, which is about 70 miles away, which was the provincial capital of Judea. And he's taken there to be put on trial uh, by the uh, Roman governor, Felix. Well, at the trial, uh, the prosecuting attorney is a man by the name of Tertullus, a Jew, who represents Ananias, the high priest, and other key Jewish leaders from Jerusalem. And Paul is accused of fundamentally three crimes. Number one, of blaspheming God by desecrating uh, the temple. Uh, Judaism was a recognized uh, religion within the Roman Empire. And uh, so uh, they were claiming that he blasphemed uh, their a religion by desecrating the temple. Second, by defying Israel in disobeying the Mosaic law. And then probably the most serious accusation from the Romans' perspective of defying Rome. By being an insurrectionist and creating riots against the government. The Jews, they demand the sentence of death. Because these are capital crimes. Especially being an insurrectionist against the government of Rome. Despite the fact that they cannot prove their case against Paul, Felix keeps Paul in prison in Caesarea in chains for two years as a concession to the Jews. He just is languishing there in prison for two years. Because he doesn't want to stir up unrest, Felix. He's doing the politically correct thing that will create the least disturbance. Well, finally, Felix is succeeded by a new governor. That new governor is Festus. Festus hadn't even assumed his position for just a few days until here come the Jews. And they're demanding that he sends Paul to Jerusalem to be tried there by the Jews. Their actual plan, the Bible tells us, is to set an ambush for Paul On the way to Jerusalem and kill him. Before he ever gets there. Well Festus refuses their request. And instead he sets up a second trial in Caesarea. Which he presides over. Now just as in the first trial. Two years earlier. The same charges are brought against Paul. By the Jewish religious leaders. And once again. Again they cannot make a single charge stick. Festus feeling pressured by the Jews, he suggests that the trial be moved to Jerusalem. And he asks Paul if he's willing to do that. And keep in mind the reason uh, Paul is getting this attention is that he is a Roman citizen. So he had to be treated uh, with uh, uh, the great justice. Now at this point, Paul realizing... If they send this trial to Jerusalem, I'll never get out of there alive. What he does is he appeals his case to Caesar in Rome, which was his right as a Roman citizen who was accused of capital crimes. That would have the death death sentence to it. He's given one more opportunity to present his case in a private meeting, not a court trial, but a private meeting presided by Festus, the governor of Judea, the Roman governor of Judea, and King of Agrippa, who was the designated king of the Jews by the Romans. Now, in that meeting, Paul powerfully presents the gospel of Christ, especially to Agrippa, who was a Jew and knew the Old Testament scriptures. Festus the Roman government, he concludes as he listens to Paul, this guy is just a stark, raving lunatic. He's just crazy. He's a madman talking about somebody who raised from the dead. uh, Agrippa, he acknowledges that Paul has done absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing worthy of death, absolutely nothing worthy of imprisonment, and he should be set free. But wanting to maintain good relationships with the Jewish population, they make the politically expedient decision and Paul is sent to Rome to appeal his case before Caesar. And by the way, do you know who Caesar is at this time? It's Nero. It's Nero, uh, which put uh, Paul in a very uh, precarious position. You know, it's what's worse, Jerusalem or, or Rome, and he, f- he figured, hey... Uh, I'd have a better opportunity in Rome. Plus, he knew he was destined to go to Rome. And God had given him promises that he would uh, protect him and that he would have the opportunity to share the gospel in Rome. Well, on the way to Rome, on the way to Rome, and one of the most dramatic stories in the entire Bible, most people are not familiar with it, but it literally is one of the most dramatic stories found in Old or New Testament, which highlights Paul's faith and courage. Paul's ship encounters hurricane force winds and is shipwrecked. Paul becomes stranded on the little island of Malta for three months along with other prisoners from the ship the Roman soldiers who were guarding them other passengers and the ship's crew. Eventually uh, they hop onto another ship and Paul finally arrives in Rome. Paul whose heart was set on going to Rome as a preacher. This was this man's lifelong ambition as a believer, to go to Rome as a preacher to share the gospel. Instead, he goes as a prisoner. And there in Rome, he spends two more years in chains. Now, the chains that Paul wore were uh, longer than our modern Uh, They were about 18 inches long and uh, one end was attached, of course, to the uh, prisoner's wrist and the other was attached to a Roman guard's wrist. Uh, The chain was never moved from the prisoner, never moved, 24-7, making both escape and privacy absolutely impossible. Paul was permitted as you read in the book of Acts, to stay in a rented home. And, of course, he thankfully was supported by other believers like the Philippians that made that possible. And he was allowed to have visitors come and go. The book of Acts ends. This is how the book of Acts ends. It says, for two full years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house And welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now with that historical background go back to Philippians. And Paul writes, now I want you to know brethren that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Now let me share with you what strikes me about that statement. I mean just right, just penetrates my heart. Paul really believed Romans 8, 28. And he not only believed it, he lived it. He believed that God is in sovereign control. Causing all circumstances, good and bad, to work together for his child's benefit and the advance of the gospel. It didn't make any difference if it were the Jews repeatedly trying to kill him and falsely accusing him of capital crimes. Or Felix, Festus, and Agrippa keeping him in prison unlawfully. Or the storm, or the shipwreck, or the chains that he wore for four years. Paul viewed them all as tools in the hands of the potter To mold and fashion him into a vessel fit for the master's use. Therefore, Paul never once complained about what God did not do. But he always was rejoicing in what? What God was doing. Paul viewed, listen now, Paul viewed his circumstances, many of those awful circumstances, not as unwelcome obstacles, but as stepping stones to advance the gospel. When he wrote in verse 12, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, circle that word progress, that word progress, my circumstances have turned out for the progress of the gospel. In the Greek text... That word is a military term referring to army engineers going before the troops to open the way into new territories, which was difficult work. They're laying down uh, roads and clearing the way and establishing bridges so the troops can travel. Hard work, tough work, slow work. And Paul says, my circumstances have turned out as an opportunity for a pioneer advance of the gospel. To take the gospel into new territories where it had never gone before. Therefore, his focus is not on how to escape prison. But how to be a light in the darkness. Not to whine, but to shine for Christ. To, glow, to grow and blossom right where God had planted him. Now folks, that is some testimony. Because put yourself in his shoes. How would you have responded to all of those circumstances? Now, going back to the text, Paul mentions two specific ways God used his imprisonment as a pioneer advance of the gospel, and this is so very, very exciting. Again, just a great example of Romans 8.28, that when we trust him, He causes all things, everything, to ultimately work for our good and the advance of the gospel. The first thing was Paul's imprisonment gave him contact with the lost. Paul's imprisonment gave him contact with the lost. Look at verse 13. My imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole world. Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Now folks, that is quite a statement and let me explain. He says, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole, the entire Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, a reference to Rome itself and to its two million residents at the time. Now, who were the Praetorian Guard? They were a hand-picked division of 9,000 crack imperial troops. These were the most, the most elite soldiers in the Roman Empire. They were given double pay. They were given the best equipment. They were granted the highest honors and privileges. Including a very generous pension. When they ended their military service. And, uh, most, and these men were required to serve for at least 12 years. They were dispersed strategically throughout the city of Rome to keep peace and especially protect the emperor. You could almost say they were like uh, Caesar's uh, private uh, bodyguard, his own private private little force. Eventually, a little bit later down in history, they actually became known as kingmakers because they not only protected But they ended up choosing the emperors. One of their duties at this time was to guard prisoners awaiting trial with Caesar. That was one of their duties. Paul was literally chained. Remember we talked about those chains and how he was chained to a Roman guard? Well, Paul was chained to one of these soldiers, to one of the Praetorian guard Twenty-four hours a day in four-hour shifts, which meant Paul was chained to six different soldiers each and every day for a two-year period of time, full two-year period of time. Now, folks, I bet every time a new soldier was chained to Paul, there came a little twinkle in Paul's eyes. And a smile on his face. And he thought to himself, you know, you think you're here to guard me. But you know what reality is? I'm here as a soldier of Jesus to win you. To guard you for Christ. Now think about this. Think about this for a moment. They were chained to the Apostle Paul when he wrote his letter to the Ephesians. A guard was literally chained to as he wrote that letter. A guard was chained to him when he wrote the letter to the church at Colossae. When he wrote the letter of Philemon. When he wrote this letter of Philippians. Think about the fact that they heard every one of Paul's conversations with the visitors that were coming in and out. Think how many times they would have heard him present the gospel of Christ. Some of the loss that came into him. How often they heard him encourage believers in their faith and instruct them in the ways of Christ. They heard Paul's prayers, which included prayers for them. They witnessed up close and personal the holy, loving character of Christ displayed through the Apostle Paul. And can you even begin to imagine the conversations they had when everybody left? And just alone in that rented home is Paul and that Praetorian guard. Paul's message, the message of the gospel, Paul's holy character had a profound impact on these elite, hardened, and influential soldiers. We do not know how many, but some came to know Christ through the witness of Paul. And through their witness, Paul could say the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian guard. You know, it's all 9,000. They're talking about Jesus because of what's being reported to them by these guards that had the duty of watching Paul, and not only the Praetorian guard, but he says to everyone else a reference to the city of Rome. And when you come to the end of the book of Philippians, Paul writes, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Even the household of Nero was penetrated by the gospel of Christ through the witness of these Praetorian guards who in turn had been won to Christ through the ministry of the Apostle Paul while in prison. Now folks, talking about a great example of visually, verbally, and virally spreading the gospel, here it is. Here it is right here. As Christ literally becomes the talk of all of Rome. And if Paul were to be asked, Paul, how did this happen? I don't think he would say anything. He would just hold up his chains. That's how it happened. What initially appeared to be the greatest setback for the gospel, with its greatest champion being sidelined in prison, became one of the greatest advances of the gospel in the history of the church. God accomplished through Paul as a prisoner what he could never accomplish as a free man. Oh, the sovereign wisdom and understanding of God. His thoughts truly are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And that's why when we cannot trace his hand, we need to trust his heart knowing he's got it in control. See, when the the Romans bound Paul in chains, they did not realize they were merely releasing the gospel of Christ. So the first way God used Paul's imprisonment to advance the gospel was that it gave Paul contact with the lost. Look at the second way God used Paul's imprisonment to advance the gospel. Second way there in your notes. Paul's imprisonment gave courage to the saved. Gave courage. He not only brought him into contact with the lost, being able to witness to those praetorian guards who then in turn took the gospel of Christ Uh, into the city of Rome, even, even into the very household of Caesar, but it gave courage to the lost. Look at verse 14. Most of the brethren, and he's referring here very specifically to the believers in the church in Rome. But I think even more widespread than that, but a very specific reference to the believers in Rome. He says, most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Now, folks, the implication in this verse is that be, but before Paul was imprisoned, before he was imprisoned, believers were afraid, or at least they were very reluctant to openly share their faith, especially in Rome. Hostility towards Christianity at this time was beginning to get ramped up. It was intensifying from both Jewish leaders and the Roman government. The emperor... Nero's madness was beginning to escalate with the church falling under greater and greater suspicion. Believers found it just safer to lay low and to be quiet. Let's not stir up the waters. Let's not create any trouble for ourselves. Now, in stark contrast to their timidity, Paul is put in prison because he was bold and fearless in his stand for Christ, even to the point of death if necessary. When the believers in Rome, when they saw how God multiplied Paul's ministry despite persecution, despite the imprisonment, their courage and their boldness to share the gospel was revitalized. You know, most of you are too young to remember a great example, uh, in, uh, back in the '50s, uh, but many of you may have heard the story. Remember the five young men, missionaries, that traveled to Ecuador to take the gospel to an unreached people group called the Aka. Am I saying that right? Aka Indians, the Aca Indians, and remember, all four were killed. All four were killed. Uh, One was Elizabeth Elliot's husband. You remember Elizabeth Elliot went back with others. And one, the murderers to the Lord and that tribe uh, to the Lord. Well, if you remember that, something incredible happened. When those five men were killed, something just happened in the church in America. And you began to see young people by the droves committing to go into the mission field, especially from Wheaton College, where all five of these young men were from. And it, it, just, it just, there was an explosion. Their example, their, their boldness, their fearlessness dealt with the timidity of the church and the church came under conviction and we saw the need to boldly stand. And that's what's happening right here with the Apostle Paul. They saw in Paul's example the reality that God, yes, is in sovereign control. He overrules in the affairs of men to ensure the advance of the gospel. Like Paul, they were now inspired to live their lives for the advance of the gospel with their motto, to live is Christ and die is gain. Now do not miss in this. How the example of a single life, the example of a single life remaining faithful to Christ in the midst of suffering can revolutionize and energize the entire church. Reality is, people are watching you. They're watching me. They're watching this church. Are we giving them an example worth following? Now let me, we'll just end right there and pick back up there um, next week. But as I close, let, let me end this way. Let me end this way. If you were here when I introduced the book of Philippians, one of the things I did in that introduction, that overview, I mentioned five recurring themes that you see that are weaved throughout the entire book and it's amazing that already just in this although we haven't gotten any further than verse 14 we've already seen all five of these threads begun and I just want you to remind you of them and 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 use what we've heard today as a challenge to you the first theme that we, that we said is weaved throughout the book of Philippians, that you just can't miss, which is the primary theme of the book, is the priority of living and sharing the gospel. So, as we come to the conclusion of today's message, and we see the example of the Apostle Paul, and how it inspired the believers in Rome with a greater boldness to share the gospel, let me ask you, Can you honestly say that to live and share the gospel is the number one priority in your life? Are we as a church putting the advance of the gospel first? Is it center? Is that our passion? Is that what excites us the most? Is that what we're talking about? What we're investing in, giving ourselves to? And if not... We just need to begin by saying, God, help us. We've drifted from what should be most important. God, get us back on course. God, here I am. You know my weakness. You know my failures. You know my infirmities. But God, if you can use somebody like me, here I am in all my weakness, in all my infirmities and failures, so God, use me. Open my eyes to begin to connect the circumstances in my life with you. That these circumstances, even the difficult ones, they're opportunities that you're giving me to make you known to others to spread the gospel. See, we don't look that way. We don't, even, we don't even have that perspective on life. So we miss opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And that takes me to uh, the second recurring theme. The importance of attitude. Outlook determines outcome. Because Paul had the proper outlook in life keeping his focus on Jesus, trusting him, although he couldn't understand everything that was happening. He was able to hang in there and persevere until he saw the results. See, he could have caved at the beginning of the trial, four years earlier. He could have caved after a second trial in Caesarea when he knows he's not getting out of prison. He could have caved in the shipwreck. He could have caved when he finally got to Rome and he's still in chains. But the man kept his focus on Jesus. And he said, I don't know what you're doing, but I know you're in control and my life is yours. And see, we, look at, we know the whole story now. Paul didn't know what the outcome was going to be when it all started, did he? I mean, he could have easily said, God, where are you? I'm your preacher boy. I'm the one that you met on the road to Damascus. You gave me that commission to take the light of the gospel to the Gentile world. And now you're putting me on the shelf? Now you're just laying me up? No. He said, I'm going to trust you. And because this man hung in there and persevered those four years, there was the greatest advance of the gospel in the history of the church. As all of Rome now is talking about this Jesus Christ, this man raised from the dead. What's another recurring theme? The secret of joy. We learn a little bit right now. What is the secret to true joy? The true secret to joy, it's the settled conviction that God's in control. And God will not let anything touch my life. He will not let anything touch the life of his child unless he knows it will ultimately work for his child's benefit. Spiritual growth and the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why you couldn't keep Paul down. That's why throughout this book he's in prison but he's rejoicing 16 different times in the book. He uses the word joy or rejoice. And then how about the recurring theme of the surpassing value and gain in knowing Christ. Paul came to realize that I live for one reason. And that's to know him, to make him known to others. Because there is no one of greater value, there's no greater treasure than the Lord Jesus Christ. And it it was his joy just to put Jesus in the spotlight. Jesus on the pedestal. Jesus to be exalted and magnified. And then that fifth recurring theme, the motivation. To live for Christ in light of his return. And we've already seen a reference to the return of Christ at the end of that prayer that we looked at last week. And that should be motivation. Because as believers, we've been given a commission. We've been given a mission. We are soldiers on duty. And one day, we will stand before Jesus to give an account of our duty as a soldier of Jesus Christ. And will he be able to look at us and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Or with grief, we have to look at us and say, why were you AWOL? Where were you? You got your life so entangled, so involved in all this peripheral, all the temporal things of this world. And you missed the greatest treasure, the greatest mission, the greatest cause to give yourself to. And that's the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus. You know, as we go into the time of invitation, you know, here's my conviction As we come to the end of any service, I believe this is the most important time in the service. And I'll tell you why I believe that. In the book of James, it says our tendency is we'll come to God's Word and we'll see Jesus, we'll see our lives, we see the changes that need to be made. And then what's our tendency? To turn away and forget. And that happens Sunday after Sunday. We're here. You come under conviction. God is speaking. And then we walk out those doors and we forget. And that's why I don't believe you should ever read the Word of God, hear the Word of God, about making some concrete decision, trusting His grace to see your life change. I'll tell you how I came to know growth in my my Christian life. I came to know Christ out of a deep, terrible life of sin and rebellion. I got there in that Bible college. And one of the things those students hated more than anything else, we had chapel every single day, every single day. And one of the uh, teachers, uh, you know, would share, share some message. Well, folks, you know what I did? I guarantee I was right up front in that chapel, totally attentive. He had my right, and I was committed. I am, and, and I'm telling you, some of those men were pretty boring at times. But I was committed, there's something I can get from this. There's some promise I can claim. There may be an area of conviction I need, where I need to confess something to God. There, there might be, it could be, there's some step of obedience that I need to take. In on. But I've, I've tried to maintain that habit through my Christian life. That I never come under the hearing, the study, the teaching of God's word without taking some step. It's even a small step. And that's why I give you the sermon notes. I don't want you to become overwhelmed by all the material. What I've always suggested to you, take these sermon notes. You pinpoint one area where God is speaking to you. And then you leave this place committed to focus on that area in prayer, trusting God. You can't do it in your strength, you can't do it in the flesh, but just acknowledge to God. God, I need you. And you focus on that area and you ask God to be the grace that you need, to be what He desires you to be. And that's why this invitation time is so important. It's a time for you to reflect. It's a time for you to respond. You know, there's no need to have to come down. Now, if God, if there is a public decision, great. Especially uniting with the church. We like you to come down, to get your face before the people, to give them an opportunity to begin to love you, to care for you or if you're coming down to make a public profession of faith, a new believer, and you're not ashamed that Jesus is yours now, and you just want to acknowledge that, and acknowledging that, join up with this church to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, wonderful. But every single person should always be responding at this time of invitation. So let me ask you to stand right now. And as the invitation is extended, don't ever feel that you need to sing, Let Brother Andy and this praise team sing. Now, if you want to join them, fine, join them each and every Sunday. But more important than anything, don't use the song that's sung as something to hide behind and not respond. So you reflect, you respond. I'll be here to greet anyone that has a decision of a public nature. But Let's all be obedient and responsive to the Lord right now.